Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, making your agency's data actionable and interoperable. And how is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services modernizing their cyber defense? It's Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, sponsored by Salonis, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The Federal Emergency Management Agency has a new chief information officer. Charles Armstrong was appointed as CIO late last week. He has previously served in a variety of tech roles across DHS, including as Customs and Border Protection's first CIO, named in 2004. Hospitals operated by the Department of Veterans Affairs, Defense Department, and Coast Guard are facing more connectivity issues with Oracle Cerner's electronic health record systems. A VA spokesperson confirmed that the EHR system suffered major slowdown and connectivity issues earlier last week. Systems were not down, but users experienced issues in response times. You can read more about these stories and more at fedscoop.com. Salonis, the world's leading process mining provider, helps public sector agencies reveal and fix decades of hidden process gaps across data systems to power their digital transformation. Visit salonis.com to learn more. Federal agencies are continuing to leverage data as a critical asset, as laid out in the federal data strategy and its subsequent action plans. Chris Radich is Vice President of Public Sector Solution Engineering at Salonis, the sponsor of today's episode of the Daily Scoop podcast. In this interview with my Scoop News Group colleague, Wyatt Cash, Radich discusses what the Office of Management and Budget got right with the federal data strategy. You know, it's, it's always interesting to reflect on 2016, uh, former federal CIO Tony Scott had this idea of putting together a succession plan for the, the new administration and new federal CIO. And part of that with the state of federal IT, which was a great idea I was uh, lucky enough to be a part of, was to benchmark against commercial best practices. And two recommendations we put forward were adopted in this 2020 action plan. Number one, assign a CDO within each agency to define a data strategy that includes a self-assessment against a common maturity model. So great job there. And then number two was to update data governance model within your agency to bring mission organizations to the table when it comes to data initiatives. So I really applaud OMB on taking this guidance in terms of commercial best practices. And I mean, they have done an outstanding job implementing those two pieces. Now we kind of shift to if we were writing a new state of federal IT report, in the year 2023, what would it look like when it comes to data initiatives? I, I'll use the oil analogy. This is pretty well known in terms of data is the new oil, primarily because of its value and the fact that organizations, government and commercial run on data. We're all becoming analytics organizations at the end of the day. So if you think of oil and the 2020 data action plan, you extract oil, and I think they've done a great job of focus on developing an inventory of strategic data assets. That's primarily extracting data, finding it and extracting it. Um, we've put a lot of management around these data sets with governance, cemented the agency CDO, chief data officer. 
really fantastic there. I also love the concept they put into place of any data initiative should start with a priority agency question. I mean, that's fantastic because it roots, it roots these initiatives more into mission problems around the veteran, around the warfighter, et cetera. But if you think about that oil analogy, we're, we're really focusing a lot on extraction, a lot on cataloging and finding the data. How do we take this policy now into refining the data, just like you would with, with crude oil to make it uh, valuable to the end consumer or constituent in our case? And then how do we distribute it? So provide an analysis that has uh, relevance both inside government and outside government. That's that's really the next step. And I don't think it was you got it wrong because if you look at that oil kind of life cycle I just I just explained, you need to start with the extraction. You have to understand your most valuable data assets and how you're going to both mine those and make them available. But now the question is, I think we can be more technology centric in future policy on how do we apply innovative technologies to these data sets? And that's in the refinement and the distribution. Uh, there's been a lot of press lately on AI and ML. Uh, I work in the process mining space, which is in that category of technology. And we need to understand how we take these data sets beyond just dashboards into more forward-looking technologies that could really change government. Well, you make a couple of great points there, one of which is the, the evolving role of the CDO um, and um, the importance of asking the right question at agencies. And I am intrigued to hear as well about you know, how far we've come in this extraction model, as it were. But let me ask, what do you see as the most relevant areas of the action plan now for this administration to continue to pursue? And where do you see the, the sort of CDOs needing to focus next? So I read the entire, the entire document of the 2020 action plan and went through it a couple times. But action nine just kept sticking out to me. And there's some reasons. Action nine is improved financial management data standards. If you've been watching the news lately, you've seen debt ceiling discussions have brought, uh, I'd say, government procurement to the forefront. It hasn't necessarily been framed that way, but debt has topped 30 trillion for the first time. The ceiling uh, is being uh, potentially raised again. And the question I ask is how do we leverage this data to not necessarily reduce and cut program spend, but to find inefficiencies in some of these payments within a procurement end-to-end -end process that will help us continually manage against this debt stealing. I do believe this is kind of a moment of austerity for government. So I, I just think that's the biggest mission problem we have right now. So let's let's frame this action nine and continue to uh, to execute against it. I, I think action nine was well framed and I and I really applaud some of the efforts there. You know, so I'll just take a moment here to talk about USAspending.gov. Great effort there to bring a transparent view to where government spend is going. 
within an agency and in terms of what categories that spend is going against. And then improper payments, 5.1% uh, of government spend is unknown or improper fraudulent payments. And we need to continue down this quest. But a lot of what, what we've done in this space is still two-dimensional. You know, we get views of spend by category or spend by agency. And the same thing with improper payments by agency or category. How do we continue these efforts, but get, I'd say more sophisticated and have a 3D view of government spend and a three-dimensional view of an agency's procure to pay process that will really move the needle against this really austerity, I'd say policy and discussions that are going on right now. Absolutely. Well, to just broaden the scope of the Federal Data Strategy Act, you know, a lot of the emphasis there was on figuring out ways to leverage government data as a strategic asset. And we certainly saw a lot of that during the pandemic, uh, the ability to accelerate research, for example. I'm be interested to hear what examples are you seeing of note of how agencies have really started to leverage data as a strategic asset? And how should government executives be thinking about leveraging data more effectively in the years ahead? It's a great question because I'll, I'll kind of double down on the two-dimensional or 2D to 3D view. If there was a headline of what the next iteration of the 2020 action plan looks like, it would be, let's move to a three-dimensional, more sophisticated views of our most valuable data sets. I mean, the COVID, so a two-dimensional example would be COVID-19, a whole lot of visualizations and dashboards were leveraged to track, for example, vaccinations by county. Really, that's a simple visualization, very, very valuable. But can we take that a step further? So I work in the process mining space now. It's a uh, transformational technology. One of the things that it brings to the table is you're transforming some of those pretty flat data sets, financial data sets in particular, and you're adding in things like a timestamp and a case ID. And what that does when you transform your data it gives you the ability to visualize in a 3D world how spend routes through an organization. This is completely different than a, da a two-dimensional dashboard. So that would be my vision in terms of what should we do? We, we need to be, um, I'd say, more sophisticated in the technologies we apply to our data sets. And I would propose in this next action plan that every agency implements a process digital twin. So that 3D view of your procure to pay process. Now, just imagine how impactful that is given the current climate around the debt ceiling. And uh, an example of who's done it is uh, innovators over at, within the Department of Defense, within Navy's financial management organization. They've leaned in, created a process digital twin for procure to pay amongst others, other financial processes and have tremendous visibility on where inefficiencies are occurring and where they can 
dive in deeper in order to get even more control on their spend. Uh, I, I really believe this whole process digital twin concept, starting with procure to pay, it's gonna be pervasive three years from now. Uh, so if policy can help accelerate this emphasis on getting a deeper, more transparent view into your procure to pay process, it would be greatly, I think, appreciated from my end, but uh, it'll move the needle on some of the conversations we're having with within kind of the macro legislature. Absolutely. And we're hearing a lot of, um, I think, innovative uh, opportunities around digital twins because you take these virtual models and then you can test different solutions or different um, remediation approaches and see which ones work and work effectively without having to invest in these long-term overhauls. You can kind of see uh, in near-term uh, view what can be done to improve things on that. So thank you for mentioning that. I'd, I'd like to ask one last question. What, uh, you, as, as I think you would agree, one of the key constraints, constraints rather of leveraging data is finding enough people with the necessary data management and analytic skills. So what's your advice for agencies when it comes to finding those right data skills in today's tight labor market? Yeah, this is a really difficult challenge for federal leaders. There's a finite level of data, both analysts, engineers, and scientists. And, you know, a funny quote, I think, to bring levity to the situation is, oil has no value if it's stuck in the ground. <laughs> so data has no value if it's stuck in your databases and uh, data warehouses. And I, I just spoke with an SES. They, uh, they answered this question, and it was, we really rely on contractors in this space. And it, it was a, a moment, I think, of humility in terms of some of the pay scale challenges, as well as just the overall pool of cleared resources with these skills. But I do, through that conversation, three pretty pragmatic recommendations came about. One was, you need to adopt easy-to-use tools. This can't be an engineering experiment, like adopt out of the box software that can be leveraged by users within the financial management community. You've probably heard this, Wyatt, it's, it's called citizen development. And in this case, I'd call it citizen analytics. Uh, also, don't look to staff an army of data engineers and analysts or, or data scientists is the new buzzword strategically upskill and reskill existing staff with a data background. Every IT organization, every ERP organization in government has DBAs, database analysts. So they have the fun fundamental data skills like understanding data models, understanding data extraction and integration. These are the people who you want to look to upskill. Uh, and then have this small set of folks specialize on platforms and take a leadership role. So you're probably never gonna staff up at the analyst or engineer level where you don't have any reliance on contractors or vendors, but have folks take leadership roles to build centers of excellence around these technology OEMs. Well, Chris Radich, thank you so much for sharing some of your insights. You can learn more about the federal data strategy at fedscoop.com.
Coming on Thursday's episode of the Daily Scoop podcast, four critical steps to protecting federal data. Marisol Cruz Kane from the Government Accountability Office tells me what those four areas are and how agencies can start making progress on them. That show debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com or wherever you get your podcast from. Government agencies are working hard to secure increasingly dynamic and highly distributed IT environments. Robert Wood is Chief Information Security Officer at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. In this interview with my Scoop News Group colleague, Wyatt Cash, Wood explains how his organization is shifting their view of firewalls and perimeter defense. So this whole change to me really represents more of a a shift away from traditional infrastructure towards everything being software dominated in some way, shape or form. And when, you know, one of the big benefits of that being not just you can turn things on and turn things off quickly, but that you can capture configuration in code. You can turn more things into an as code state compliance is code, configuration is code, and infrastructure is code, and all of that stuff. And when something is code, it can be tested and verified and, and uh, assessed as such. And that allows that it's not only driving efficiencies in the utilization and consumption of those things, firewalls, uh, uh, infrastructure resources, etc., but also all the processes, especially in the federal government space where we've got FISMA and all of these other compliance and regulatory requirements to assess and verify and authorize those things as they stand. So that that to me is is like one of the most exciting things about all of this and how, um, at least how my brain sort of orients to it. Well, we certainly seem to be in a new age of capability with code that way. That's interesting. Um, but another question I have is, how, how is the increasing volume of traffic and the need to encrypt and decrypt traffic also reshaping your view of what modern firewalls need to accomplish so that employees can still get their work done efficiently? Well, I don't know, I don't know that it necessarily means that we have to just do things the same way that we always did with, you know, like having these, these sort of choke points for traffic coming in, you know, traffic comes into an environment, it's decrypted for analysis, re-encrypted and sent off to its destination. So there's a lot of ways that we can do monitoring in this day and age. And one of the, one of the exciting things about all of these new technologies that are coming out, data lakes and, and, um, every every solution that we're consuming having an a, having an API so we can consume data out of more parts of our infrastructures instead of focusing our monitoring all like right in that uh, that critical path of traffic as it's you know passing through we can we can get monitoring from all over the place and we can synthesize that and we can draw more accurate and and um, high value insights into what's really going on. And so so I think what this change is really driving is a change in the way that we go about detecting and responding to issues in our environment. So so the traffic isn't necessarily causing, if if we were to do things the old way, I think the traffic and, and all of that would put tremendous strain on how we do what we do. But the fact that we're able to change how we're doing things it's not necessarily a problem. I mean, there's other complexities, of course, that come into that. You, know, you have to actually have the resources to interface with all these different 
endpoints and have places to put the data and you have to, you know, you're shifting into more of a data centric and engineering centric workforce. But I think that's, that's the way of the future for the security industry. And it's where we need to go anyway. So it's, I mean, it's a good, it's a good change. Absolutely. Well, where are you seeing your infrastructure and security modernization efforts actually paying off with a stronger or more dynamic perimeter? In a lot of ways. So couple of big ones is by, so like us embracing this as a security team directly, we are more nimble, which makes us able to leverage that and pass along the, the dividends or the benefits of that to those we are serving across the enterprise. But bigger than that, so like as CMS, the enterprise begins to adopt more of these technologies, they are finding efficiencies in their time to market, their time to uh, their time to production, which to me, you know, so I come from a startup product engineering world. I, this is my first federal role. So I, that's just kind of how my brain works is, is time to market and, and iteration speed and developer throughput and all of, all of those velocity metrics basically, um, or, or uh, agility metrics. And the, the, speed at which people are able to get things into production, not just the actual engineering of those things. So there's the procurement of the resources, the building of the thing, the assessment of it, and the authorization of it. We're seeing the benefits of these technologies manifest in all of these different stages. And so you get these, these stackable efficiency gains across the life cycle. And when you accumulate all of that, you get a much more efficient development process end to end. And that's that's really exciting because the faster we can get to market, it's not just money saved, it's mission capability, getting in the hands of those who need it faster. And so, you, you know, you take a, an agency like CMS, who's dealing with things and contributing to the response against COVID-19 and the opioid epidemic and all these other big things happening in healthcare, mm-hmm. speed is like speed cannot be undervalued. And so like, we need we need to be faster. And this is one of those things that's enabling that speed. Great point. And then lastly, I'd be remiss in not asking, um, so how are the government's zero trust objectives, uh, particularly around network environments, how is that reshaping your view and your agency's top security priorities for the coming year or so? Yeah, so it's hard to weigh for me anyways, the importance of like the network elements of a zero trust architecture to let's say endpoints or users or data or applications. Um, I think it it's very context dependent. So in a big sprawling enterprise like we have, it might make more sense to focus your investment around zero trust on on data. Uh, for example, or in another place, it might make more sense to focus on networks. And so one of the ways that we are thinking about zero trust architectures in, in particular is trying to find the, the largest points of intersection of centralized technology, where we have as many systems and users using a piece of centralized technology as possible, and basically trying to build in elements of that zero zero trust architecture into the centralized tech. So that way we can invest once and benefit in many places. 
because in, in reality, you know, we have over 200 FISMA systems. We have, we've got all the centers, all the offices that make up the enterprise. And if we were to try to just tell everyone, like, go implement a zero trust architecture and we, we forego centralized IT and, and core services where we can do this stuff in one place and see it, see the, the fruits of that labor uh, be reaped in, in a lot of different places, then, then what would end up happening is we'd have a lot of different implementation. You know, we, let's say you have $10 million to invest, you have to split it up into $500,000 segments and you're only going to get a tiny little bit of benefit and it's all going to be unique and different and nothing's going to be cohesive and work together. And so it's, it would be an absolute mess. And so, so our approach is very much like focused on those areas of consistent either patterns or technology and, and network certainly plays into that because in some way, everyone is on the CMS network in some capacity or, or large chunks of the enterprise are using the cloud infrastructure, centralized, centrally managed cloud infrastructure. And so there's definitely elements there that we're strongly considering, but like broadly speaking, that's how we're, that's how we're approaching the zero trust, uh, like our zero trust strategy. Well, it's certainly a lot to uh, kind of integrate into a broader security uh, set of responsibilities, uh, I'm sure. So, um, well, Robert, well, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to share your perspective on what you're seeing at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and uh, just the evolution of this increasingly dynamic perimeter that everyone's talking about. So thank you for joining us. You are welcome, sir. You can learn more about CMS's cybersecurity posture at fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again Thursday afternoon. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.